Good morning, Renewal. Good morning. If you're new with us, I just want to say welcome to you. Thanks for joining us today. You picked a good Sunday. Obviously, we're going through our vision series entitled The Pillars, The Pillars, here at our church. So I'm glad you're here. For the next few weeks, you're going to jump in with us, and we're going to be walking through these three pillars that I like to say. And the pillars are, some of you should know them by now. It should be a test, right? No, I'm not going to do that to you this morning. All right, number one, we want to renew hearts by the power of the gospel. Number two, we want to rebuild lives through discipleship. And lastly, we want to release people for city and really world impact. Because you come here to Chicago and you go from here all over the world. So we want people to come into our church and experience Jesus in a way where they can't help but as you walk outside those doors to tell somebody else about the good news of Jesus. See, we're a gospel-centered church here in the city of Chicago that's centered in the city, but we are for the city. So we want this city to be better because we're here. Amen? Amen. Amen. You picked a good Sunday to be with us. If you got a Bible, won't you meet me in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And if you will, if you're able, won't you stand on your feet with me as we read and honor the word of God. If you can't, don't worry about it. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screens. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, reading from the ESV translation. If you got it, won't you say got it? All right. Starting in verse 14, the word of God reads, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Very words of God, amen. amen. Today I want to preach simply on the topic, the gospel. Can you say the gospel? the gospel? The gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your goodness this morning. Lord, I just pray that as we walk through your word and this first pillar of our vision, renewing hearts by the power of the gospel, is that that's what we'd hear this morning. You wouldn't hear my voice, but we'd hear you, God. So I ask that you decrease me and hide me behind your cross. May you fill this place with your presence, God, and your word fall afresh on your people, God. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said together, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, it's the year 1994. Anybody here born in 1994? Y'all better represent, <laughs> making all us other people feel old, but it's okay. I'm glad y'all are here. 94 in the house. It was in 1994 that Coca-Cola realized that their premier product was losing sales. This sales of this product, this product was none other than Sprite. Anybody here like Sprite? All right, now y'all love some Sprite. At least y'all were honest. First service didn't get with me. Sprite. And the reason they were losing sales because there was this new generation called Generation X that had come about. 
And the slogan that they had, which was, I like the Sprite in you, no longer appeal to this new generation. So they had to go back to the drawing boards and figure out how are we going to appeal to this new generation. So they brought in experts. They searched the whole country, and they were trying to figure out people. And they found these folks in New York that were really good. They had done some ads for Reebok and people like that. And they said, well, cool. Why don't you come in here? Help us figure out a slogan that's going to get this Generation X. And they would come up with this slogan that would change Sprite forever. The slogan would be that of image is nothing, thirst is everything. Everybody knows this last part. Obey your thirst. thirst. Obey your thirst. When they were asked where they received this idea, one of the employees would describe how they came across this speech that Ronald Reagan had done when he was governor back in 1971, and he's nearing the end of his speech as he's talking to these Boy Scouts, and he, he, he says at the end, on, at this hot, uh, at the end of the, this day, on a hot summer Southern California day, he, he's, he's, he's parched, and he says, I need a drink of water. He reaches down to get his water, and the next thing he said was this. He said this to these boys. He said, now, I certainly have spoken on a number of things, different topics today, however, If you are to remember one thing and one thing only, remember this. Speeches are nothing. Thirst is everything. Always remember to obey your thirst. Sound familiar? That's the same catchy slogan that we all know. Obey your thirst. Sprite has used that for years. But hear me, the funny thing about drinking Sprite is that it really does not quench your thirst. You know, when you drink Sprite, it really just makes you more thirsty. I mean, it, it, <laughs> I know y'all like Sprite, but Sprite causes dehydration. You might lose some teeth because of the corn syrup and all that stuff in there. I mean, it, it, obesity, all these other things. But see, and at the end of the day, if you really want to quench your thirst, you need to go get you a tall glass of water. You need Sprite, right? You need, you need water. Well, family, here's what I'm trying to really get at this morning. Inside of all of us exists a thirst for something more, a thirst for something more, a thirst that we try to quench in all different types of ways, whether that be money, sex, drugs, relationships, material things. We try to quench our thirst with all these different vices which never satisfy. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that, that your thirst is not going to be quenched by drinking Sprite. It's not going to be quenched by by getting a tall glass of water either. No, no, no. None of that will quench your thirst and truly satisfy your thirst. The only thing that will truly satisfy, the only person that will truly satisfy your thirst is Jesus. You see, reading his word in this Bible, you know, soaking up his truths, seeking more of him day in and day out, drinking deeply from the truth of his word. You see, not, not, that, that will not only quench your thirst, but it will satisfy your soul. You see, we all have thirsty souls in here longing for more, and we need more than what this earth can offer us. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. So this morning, as we get into our vision series and this first pillar, Renewing Hearts by the Power of the Gospel, I want, you, I want to look at a passage of Scripture that we're all probably familiar with in some way or another. Maybe we've heard it in passing, a passage that makes the gospel explicitly clear. 
but sadly has become something that's tatted on our arms, on our chest, thrown around flippantly in society where it loses meaning. I mean, we, we, most of us have probably heard this. But the question is, do we really understand what's being said right here in John 3.16? So today I, I want to unpack this verse. And my hope is that we go away knowing the gospel more clearly. Simply stated, that God loved, God gave, we believe, we live forever. All right, say it with me. Say it with me. God loved, God gave, we believe, we live forever. I mean, it's kind of like a rap, right? Come on, drop that beat, Drea. Mm. Yeah. Come on now. Y'all ready? Yeah. God loved, God gave, we believe, we live forever. God loved, God gave, we believe, we live forever. Yeah. Got to wake y'all one way or another, right? I didn't know Pastor D had that in him. I was a rapper back in my day, you know. Y'all laughing a little too hard. Maybe I just need to stick to this, right? <laughs> My wife's the loudest amen. It's okay. Really back in, really back in, okay? God loved, God gave, we believe, we live forever. Those are my four points today. I'm going to get out of your way. Begin with just a bit of context. The book of John, it was written by John. Not John the Baptist, but John the son of Zebedee. John is said to be the disciple whom Jesus loved, this love disciple. So John being this love disciple made it his mission all throughout his writings to make Jesus known. He wanted people to know about his deity. He wanted people to know that he's the son of God, the Messiah, the promised one, the one that's coming to save people. He actually states the purpose of, the, of this whole book, John, in, in chapter 20, verse 31. Look at it with me. It says these words. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is John's message throughout the whole book. He wants to make the gospel plain for people. He wants people to see Jesus as God, but also as Savior and Lord. Now, the passage right here that, that we're about to walk into, it comes on the heels of an interaction that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. I, I like to call him Nick at Night. Y'all remember that, Nick at Night? I call him Nick at Night because Nicodemus comes to Jesus at nighttime. He comes to him at nighttime for two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, because he doesn't want people to see him. So he's scurrying out in the middle of the night, hiding behind this tree, this tree. And he's trying to get to Jesus because he's a Pharisee and Pharisees don't like Jesus. And the main reason, Jesus was killed. So he's trying to hide to get to Jesus. But number two, it also represents his spiritual state, which is darkness. He does not know who Jesus is. So those are two reasons he's coming to Jesus at night. Which brings understanding to the series of questions that he asked Jesus right here in the passage in John chapter 3. Like, how do you do the things you do? You, you have to be from God if you could do the things that you do. I mean, how does a man be born again? How does he go back into his mother's womb after he's full grown? 
Nicodemus doesn't understand who Jesus is. He doesn't understand spiritual things. He's a Pharisee. Now, this is problematic. He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler, y'all, and he's a teacher of the Jewish people. So he should know these things. He's part of the, the Jewish government, the Sanhedrin. He's supposed to know these things. He's teaching these people. He's a teacher of the law. He has a position in society. People learn from him. See, but his position is part of the problem. It's part of the problem. Jesus even asked him, he says, jokingly, he's probably upset too. He says, like, look, in verse 10, are you, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Renewal, isn't it funny that sometimes we can know almost everything there is to know about somebody and still not even know them? I mean, today you can get on Facebook, you can get on Instagram, you can get on Twitter, you can read everything about this person. They went to this school. I don't like them because they went to that school. That's my rival. They, went, they grew up over here. They're married. They got three kids. Uh, this is their birthday. Uh, you can see if they're fine or if they're ugly. I mean, or maybe I shouldn't say ugly, maybe not so fine. You, know, it's just, you, you can find out all these things on the web. Before you, and, and you'll be like, I know them, they're my Facebook friend, but you really don't know them. Isn't it funny how we can know all these things about somebody, but not really know them? Yeah. See, this is Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a teacher of the law of God and taught the people, but he does not know Jesus. See, in short, Nicodemus has grown up. He's taught people about how you need to obey the law. You need to obey what it says in the first five books of the Old Testament. You need to do all those things. Live by your works, basically. You get to heaven if you, if you do good works. You do all these things. Obey him. And Jesus comes on the scene. He does something totally contrary to that. He's teaching totally contrary to that. He says, look, it's not by your works. You, you only get to heaven by believing in me. Because of what I have done for you, it has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. Which brings us to our text today. In verse 16 of our text, the verse starts out with the word for. The word for, which gives us the understanding of continuation. Which simply means that Jesus is continuing his thought from verses 14 and 15 where he says these words. Look at it with me. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so, the, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. These verses are very significant to verse 16. Let me frame it up a bit with you. Is that okay? Let me, let me frame it up for you. Verse 14 refers to when the Israelites were in the wilderness. They, after they had been freed from Egypt, Egyptian captivity, God has freed them. And now they're in the wilderness and they're grumbling about not having food. God, you brought us out. At least I had food. You, I might have been getting whipped all the time, but at least I had food. They're grumbling about all these things. And, and they spoke out against God. And God's like, look, okay, you're ungrateful. Cool. I'm going to send some poisonous snakes. These poisonous serpents come out. In Numbers chapter 21, and, and because of the sickness, them getting bite, bit all the time, they're, they're, they're starting to die, and people are calling out to God, we need you, I'm sorry, we need you, God. So God does the least expected thing in order to save them. I, I love this, this is funny. He, he tells Moses, he says, look, look, make a bronze serpent, wrap that serpent, serpent around your staff, and put it in the middle of the camp, 
And if people look at that staff and that serpent and believe, they can be saved. God takes the one thing, the thing that's biting them and killing them, and says, now you got to look at it for salvation. I want enough, so look at this thing. The serpents are killing them, but yet they have to look at the serpent to be saved. Now, it's easy to say, man, God is so mean. He's malicious. He's vindictive here, but he's simply not. These people are ungrateful. And they would have died harsh deaths under Egyptian captivity if God had not saved them. And now they're crying about not having food right after God has provided for them time and time again. Hear me, family. God has never failed his people. And he's not about to start now. But the people right here in Numbers 21, they lack faith. They lack trust. Sounds like us sometimes, right? If we're honest this morning, sounds like us. I mean, it's easy for us in times of trouble to doubt, lack trust in God. When something goes wrong, what's the first thing we do? God, why'd you get me here? Why'd you do this to me? Why'd you leave me by myself? It's all your fault. My mentor used to tell me in in my dark days, because I I get dark days too. He said, Derek, look, God has done so much in you. He's used you for so much. I've seen him transform your whole life. Now let me ask you, do you think he's going to let go of you now? Do you think he's going to leave you there now and he's just going to stop working? Friends, we that believe have to trust God and who he is as an all-powerful God, as a redeemer, as a provider, not only in the good times, but also in the bad and the low times in life, in those dark days. You see, God is an unchanging God, and his ways do not change based off of the way we feel or our circumstances. He always stays the same. And for me, I don't know about y'all, but that makes me excited. I'm grateful for that because I, I go like the winds in the, in the waves. I'm all over the place. And he's unchanging, meaning that I can rely on the solid rock on which he's, I can rely on him. He said, it makes me excited. I'm grateful. See, those of us that believe have to rely on those truths that we know about God to keep us walking in faith, keep our minds right, and not rely on our feelings. See, the Israelites in Numbers chapter 21 were relying more on their feelings than what they knew was true about God. But God doesn't just punish them. I want you to get caught up in the serpents biting them. He doesn't just punish them. He shows them grace. He shows them grace. He he only chastises them a little bit to, to bring them back to himself. He shows them his love for them, one by showing Mercy, because he could have just wiped them all. Y'all want to grumble? Cool. Boom. Done with y'all. And number two, he shows them grace by creating this bronze serpent and saying, look, if you look at it, all you got to do is look at it, you're saved. They didn't deserve that, but he gives them a way out. Friends, hear me. Somebody in here needs to hear this. God is not out to get you. He's not. In his word, he says he's for us. He loves us. In this passage, he uses the very thing that's killing them to save them. And fun fact about this, maybe you've never noticed this ever before, but, but if you look at ambulances today, that same staff with the bronze serpent wrapped around it is on most ambulances riding down the street. 
See, I don't know if you're catching it. See, see, here's the thing. The same thing that God uses, the symbol that he uses to save these people is printed on the side of ambulances. The thing the world uses to save people is, is marked by the things of God. Mm, y'all missed it. You missed it. See, see, here's the thing. If sometimes, if you just look around, the truths of God are all over the place if you open your eyes and your ears a little bit. That's what I want to put in your pocket. Take it home. Now, all of this in verses 14 and 15 is very significant. It's very significant because just like God uses the least likely for salvation in numbers by using the, the most unlikely circumstance. These, these things that were killing them to save them, here's the thing. He would use the least likely, most likely on circumstance for himself to be born into this world. A baby born in a, in a stable. Most people think it was a cave laid in a manger with a family that came out of Nazareth where people thought nothing good could come out of that. But see, little did they know that this was the baby that would come in and would save the world from his sin. This is God in the flesh. This is Messiah people have been waiting for. They've been looking for. This is Jesus Christ himself, that he would die on a cross. And then three days later, he would rise from the grave, signifying he's defeated sin and death. People didn't, they didn't expect that. The most unlikely way, this is how God came to save. So we see in our text that God sends Jesus in the most unlikely way for us. But the question still lingers. I'm not sure about you, but it lingers in my mind. If God sees, and, and he saw the heart of the people in Numbers chapter 21, and he sees our wayward hearts, how we go from loving him not to loving him, or we don't even know him, and he does all these things to get us to where we If he sees our hearts as wayward sinners, why in the world would you send Jesus? You know what we're about. Why would you send Jesus? Which brings us to our first point. Look at the verse, it says this, for God so loved the world. He loved the world. Friends, the answer to why God would still send Jesus, hear me, it's very simple. The gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation is motivated by the love of God. It's the love that God has for his children that motivates his action on our behalf. He gives because he loves first. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says this. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, God's love for us is what motivates his action. And his love, hear me, on top of that, is unconditional. It's unconditional. Hear me, that verb loved in here? It comes from the Greek word agapao, which is where we get our word agape from, which means unconditional love, unconditional love. See, salvation is based on us. It's not based on us at all. It's not based on our doing right. It's not based on our doing wrong, how we look or what we have. It's solely based on his love for us. All right, y'all not following me this morning. So, so think of it this way. How many parents we got in here? Parents. See, a good parent loves their children. A good parent loves their kids. So no matter what they do, they can be dead wrong. They can do great things. We're still going to go over the top for our kids. 
That doesn't mean you don't punish them when they do things wrong, but, but you still go over the top because you love your children. That's the same thing with God right here. He goes over the top for us. He does the same thing, goes out of his way for his broken and wayward kids because he loves us and his love has nothing to do with our works. Now, the second thing we notice about his love right here in this, this first verse is, is that if you look at it again, it says, God so loved the Y'all got to wake up. God so loved the world. He loved the world. This is significant because up to this point, God was the God of the Israelites. But in one statement, he makes his saving grace available to the world. Nicodemus and the other Jews would have been like, they would have been mad. Like, no, you're our God. You're supposed to be for us. We're getting persecuted right now by the Romans. No, no, no. We're looking for somebody to save us. So when they hear Jesus say, no, no, he's the savior. I'm the savior of the world. They're like, no, please. There ain't no way you can be the Messiah. He's for us. Hear me, friends. Salvation is not specific to a certain people group. It's not. Regardless of of their works, it's not, it's not specific, which goes back to his love being unconditional. So instead, salvation is to all mankind. You look at the verse, it says, whoever, whoever shall believe, not the Jew, not the Gentile, not the black, not the white, not the Hispanic, you on down the line. It says, whoever. It's not specific. And family, we live in one of the most diverse cities across racial lines and socioeconomic lines in America. But yet at the same time, it's also the most divided. It's the most divided. And if we're here saying our first pillar in our vision is to renew hearts by the power of the gospel, by the power of the gospel, we as believers then, we need to be standing on the front lines of injustice and racial matters and and, and socioeconomics divide, all those things praying and and intentionally seeking for those walls of division to come down. It's not anybody else. It's the church. It's the church that stands on those lines. And we don't do it just because we want to have a diverse church. We do it because when we look at the passage right here, the gospel explicitly calls believers to do this. Some of y'all still missing me. I heard one amen. Hear me. God intentionally chose to love the world which is why we're here, because most of us in here, I don't know about you, we're not Jewish. We're not. But God sent Jesus, and he stepped over the racial line for you. He stepped over the divide. He crossed all lines to be with us. To be with us. He chose to cross that line. And I'm not sure about you, but I can't wait till I get to heaven. I get the fellowship with my brothers of all different colors, different socioeconomic statuses, all these different backgrounds. I, I can't wait to sing Mandarin Chinese songs. I, I, I don't know it now, but I can't wait. Be in heaven with all of my brothers and sisters. Praising him. Working together. Living together. I can't wait. No division. None of that. But until that day, as believers, we need to be intentionally living our lives in a way that we're stepping over those lines, crossing lines with other people to get a piece of heaven right here on earth. Hence the fellowship we have here at Renewal. 
See, God intentionally, he chose to love the world. But hear me, God not only loved, he gave. He gave his only son, where the second part of this verse reads, look at it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Friends, this is not a superficial love. True love gives. Societal love takes. But unconditional love gives. God's love is the opposite of the world. It's not the same. You see, the world says, I will love you if you love me. God says, I'm going to love you regardless of if you love me. The world says, do for me and I'll do for you. God says, I'm going to do for you regardless of what you do for me. Hence, I'm going to die on the cross even when you're my enemies. You see, God's the way of doing things is the total opposite of the world. They're not the same. He gives us his only son while, still, while we're still sinners. We're dead in our trespasses, according to Romans 5, 6 through 8. Look at it with me. It reads, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God's love, it's unimaginable with our worldly minds, our finite minds, because it's not a do for me and I'll do for you. He, he does for us regardless of us. So let me ask you, let me ask you. Could you die for someone that's totally against you? Could, could you die for your enemy? But better yet, could you give up your only child? I couldn't. See, see, the thing that blows my mind about the love of God is how much he gave up. What I mean is that God doesn't just give up his son, but he gave up himself. See, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. He's man, meaning he suffered like we do. He went through all the things we do. He ate like we do. We see that in Scripture. He grew like we do. He felt like we do. But, but he was also God, meaning that he had to put his deity to the side so he could come down here and live like we do, experience everything we do, which made his road to the cross when he figured out we weren't going to make it. And he dies the death that we should have died. And you may say, well, well Pastor D, how do you know that Jesus was God? How, how do you know? Well, look, I believe this book right here, the Bible, from cover to cover, everything in it, I believe all the words, inerrant, no, it, it's not fallible. I mean, it, it, everything in here inspired by God, I believe it. In John chapter 1, verse 1, I love this passage, it says these words, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Keep on reading down, John 1, 14. It says, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was God, and and. And man, all at the same time, it's this fancy word we call the hypostatic union. But I don't want you to get all mixed up in that word. 
See, he's born of the Spirit of God, birthed by this woman that was a virgin named Mary, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. But as mind-boggling as it is to think of him being 100% man and 100% God, it's even more mind-boggling to think that he didn't just give up his son, but he really gave up himself. He died the worst kind of death possible on a cross for us, sinful people, his enemies. Renew, are, are you following me? Man. See, see, friends, the love of God is truly unimaginable. He has loved us despite our sinfulness and our wrongdoings. It's out of God's love for us and, and, and giving out of that love that elicits our response and belief. Because it's in his love that we find hope. It's in his love that we believe. Which brings us to the next point. Next part of this verse says, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him. Family, we believe because he loved and he gave. Friends, hear me. We don't believe because we choose to believe. It may mess you up a little bit, but follow me. We believe because of God's unfathomable, unconditional love towards us that has caused him to give up himself and die for an undeserving people. There, there was no way back to God. There's no way back to God because of our sin. When, when Adam ate from that tree in the garden, as Tony liked to say, it was a pineapple because people can't refuse pineapples. And then somebody said, pineapples don't grow on trees, right, Tony? They don't grow on trees. But, but see, people, it was a fruit, and they ate it. And when we ate from that tree, when they ate from the tree, we all fell. We all became sinful, and there was this chasm. There was this gap that was created between us and God because he's sinless, and we were sinful. So there was no way back to God. Our fellowship was broken with him. We couldn't get back to him. So the only way to get back was a bridge. And Jesus became that bridge. He, he, he crossed the gap. And the way he crossed the gap was this perfect sacrifice because he's sinless and him by dying on the cross. We couldn't have done it. He had to die for us. It's the only way back to God. All right, y'all not following me. So let me put it this way. My wife and I, we love going to San Francisco. We've been the last three years in a row. We love going out there, all the different attractions. The weather doesn't really change. I mean, it's good to visit. It's a good place to be. We've got a lot of friends out there. But see, one of the things I love doing and I always wanted to do when we went to San Francisco was I wanted to go to the Mere Woods. I wanted to see these big old redwood trees. I mean, they're huge, monstrous trees. Some of them you could actually walk through the middle. I'm like, yeah. And then you can go in the middle. I took a picture like, what? In the middle of the tree. In the middle of the tree. Just in the trunk of the tree. I'm like, yeah, I'm in the tree. They're huge. It makes me just, like, God, you're awesome. But see, the thing about going to see these mere woods, these, these huge rare woods, is that in order to get to them, you got to cross the Golden Gate Bridge. you got to cross, cross the bridge, which, which connects San Francisco to California, the peninsula of San Francisco to the rest of California. Now, this bridge opened in 1937. It's a very vital piece of the economy 
Because before the bridge, you couldn't get to the other side unless it was by a ferry or a boat, which were very slow. So when it opened up, people were excited because now you can drive your car. You couldn't drive your car before. You couldn't get to the other side without by going by a, a ferry or boat. So, so, so here's this bridge. They, they were in love with this bridge. It's about a 1.7-mile-long bridge, and it has been named one of the wonders of the world. It had the longest suspension bridge main in the world until 1964, measuring about 4,200 feet. It's simply massive. And its massive infrastructure cost about $35 million back in the 30s to build, which is equivalent to over $500 million today. See, this massive bridge with all of its beauty, hear me, was still just mainly designed for people to have a quicker way back and forth from other side of California to the other. The, the, the bridge, hear me, is what allowed me to get to the other side to see the redwoods. See, y'all not following me. It was the bridge that got me there. We couldn't walk there. The boat was too slow. I wasn't about to jump in that shark-infested waters and start swimming. I couldn't get there without the bridge. The bridge got me to the redwoods. Y'all still not following me. See, Jesus Christ has been our bridge. It is through his death on the cross that we can be reconciled to God. It wasn't anything we could do. Our works weren't going to get us there. We were sinful. We could not cross the chasm between us and God. Fellowship was broken. The only way back to God was through the bridge, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross for us. There was no way back. You see, without Jesus dying, your faith means nothing. There's no gospel at all. We're reconciled only by his work and his work alone. Okay, some of y'all still not getting it. So, so I know I touched your heart a little bit with that, talking about my testimony and what I love about San Francisco. But some of you guys need to be touched in the mind a little bit so I can get to your heart. So let's go to school a bit. Is that okay with you? Because I know some of you guys are still thinking, like, man, it's got to be something I need to do. There's some type of choice that I have to make to get back right with God. There's something that I have to do. So, so let's go to school a bit. Stay with me now, all right? Stay with me. See, if our salvation was solely based off of our faith or just our choice, something we had to do, then it requires us to do something. Therefore, making our salvation based off of our works. All right, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 states these words. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, underline this, is not by your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of your works so that no one may boast. Now stay with me. In this verse, the thing that we miss most of the time, because we don't know necessarily the original language, but the original language, if you do some study where it says this, Underline, if you don't have an underline, this. The word this is a neuter pronoun. It's a neuter pronoun, therefore it can't point to either grace or faith because they are both feminine nouns. And if you remember old English class back in, back in elementary school, pronouns and nouns have to match. The genders have to match. So therefore, this word this, this pronoun right here, follow me now, is referring to the word gift. Meaning that the whole process of salvation is a gift. Your faith 
and his grace is a gift from God, which brings understanding to this verse now. Read it again with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Man, God is good. God doesn't leave anything up to us. Even our faith is a gift, the will to believe. See, the reason we believe is because God allows us to believe, not because we just want to believe or we choose him now. We were dead in our trespasses, in our transgressions, in our sins. And I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time a dead person was able to make a choice. This ain't the walking dead. That's just a TV show. (laughs) See, the point in all of this is that the work of salvation has nothing to do with us. And it's based off of God's love for us, him giving his sovereignty. We, we don't choose him. He chooses us. Hence, there, there's, there, there's nothing we have to do. There's nothing we can do to get back to Jesus. All we do is understand what he, what he did for us. And I don't know about you, man, but that makes me glad because if it was up to me, I would never make it. He accepts us as is. He loves us as is, and he saves us as is. He says, just come to me. Come to me. Okay, some of y'all still missing it. Anybody in here ever bought a used car before? It's okay, everybody can't buy new. I buy used cars all the time. There you go. Used car. Used car. We were like used cars. Way over the 100-mile warranty place. I mean, on the, on, it was a big old sold-ass sticker on it. You get, you get it, just everything under the hood. If you ever bought a, a used car, you went to the lot and you knew, you, you looked at the car, you looked at the outside, you may even start it up, you may have took a test drive, but there's not possibly any way for you, unless you're a mechanic and you got to take it to your garage, which you don't get to do, you would know all these things that are happening to it. But once you take it off the lot, it's yours to keep. If something goes wrong with it, it's yours to keep. You bought the used car, you're a used car buyer. But see, God, here's the difference between us buying a used car and God doing all he did for us. See, God saw all of us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our mess, all our dirt and grime, our sex-crazed world, our addictions, all of this. He said, look, I still love you. I still choose you, and I'm going to die for you regardless of you because I still want you as is. Come to me. See, I don't know about you, but that, that makes me glad this morning. Now, now, y'all still aren't getting it. See, God chooses us as is, loves us as is, and saves us as is. It's because of his love and all that he gives that elicits our response in belief. Therefore, friends, hear me. When we just say it's just a choice to believe, we cheapen the grace of God. We cheapen his love towards us. No, family, Our proper response is not just a choice we make. When we truly understand all that God went through for us, our proper response is to fall to our knees. Head bowed, say, God, I'm so unworthy. I don't deserve anything. I'm sinful, but Lord, I need you. Forgive me. That's the proper response, knowing that he has done all these things for us. It's not just a choice we make. 
But realizing all that he did for us, we come to this place of humility and repentance. Salvation doesn't just come for us by, by us figuring out, man, we got to get some stuff together in 2018. I got to clean myself up. I got to get back right with God. No, salvation comes when we come face to face with the reality of understanding our depravity. Our mess, and at the same time, there's a God that loves us in the midst of our mess. That's when it becomes real. Mm. See, it's God's love and His work on our behalf that elicits our response and belief. A holy God who doesn't have to do anything gives, He gives it all up so that we can be saved, and He gives His life so that we can have eternal life if we believe, which brings us to the last part of this verse. Read it with me as we finish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We that believe will live forever. Forever, like the sound like, forever. See, friends, those of us that believe get the joy of not only knowing Jesus now and the fact that he's died and he's covered our sins, he conquered sin and death, but one day, one day we will dwell with him forever in his presence with all our brothers and sisters that don't look like us, don't eat like us, don't vote like us. We'll be with them in heaven. There's no murder there. There's no corruption. There's none of that. See, that's where we place our hope. That's where our hope, that's where our hope is in Christ. Family, look, we deserve death according to Romans 6.23. Look at this verse with me. For the wages of sin is death. But the great thing about this verse mm, is that after the comma, there is a conjunction. There's this conjunction, but which gives us the understanding that what follows after this but is in direct contrast to what's already been stated. Y'all know English. See, the whole verse reads this, for the wages of sin is death. But here's the contrast. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But God, but God, anybody ever had a but God moment? What I mean is that if it had not been for God, you would not be here. But, but if God would not have stepped in my life, y'all, I might be dead. But if it wasn't for God, I might be locked up. But if it wasn't for God, I'd be addicted. I'd be out on the street. But if it wasn't for God, I'd have no education, no money, no family, no house, no kids, no wife. I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for the but in Romans 6.23 and all the other but God moments in my life. Anybody thankful for the but God moments in their life? It's a good God. God loved. God gave. And because of his work, y'all, we believe. And he tops it off with the gift of eternal life. Friends, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ, he worked on our behalf 
His work alone is what saves. It's not based off anything we bring to the table. Our faith is a gift. Salvation costs God everything and us nothing. God is so good. Friends, as we end the day, there may be this question lingering in your minds. Pastor D, how, how are we going to fulfill the first pillar of our vision to renew hearts by the power of the gospel if it has nothing to do with our works? Easy. Hear me, there's two ways we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number one, we can submit our lives and our will to Jesus today, recognizing all that he's done in our life, saying, I need you. I've tried in my way. I need you, Jesus. And number two, if we believe, we can walk out these doors and we can share our lives with others, exposing them to the power of God and work in us. Because here's the truth. Everyone in here that calls themselves a believer, you aren't always as good as you are today. So there's a testimony that you need to share with somebody. People need to see what Jesus has done in your life and how he's changed you. Which speaks to the next pillar of our vision next week we'll talk about, which is rebuild. We can rebuild. Friends, ask yourselves this morning as we get ready for communion. How do I need to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ this morning? How do I need to respond? Do I respond to his goodness with belief? And or do, do, I, do I need to respond by showing Jesus off to a world that needs to know him? How will you respond this morning? Amen? Let's pray.